the best time to get divorced is when you're getting along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yep. you can kind of pre-negotiate how things are going to be divided if you do decide to separate. Cohabitation agreements, prenups are both really useful for that. You can absolutely have a cohabitation agreement that accounts for more than two adults. It shouldn't be super tricky. I can't vouch for how community aware most other attorneys are, but generally speaking, can you do this thing but for three people? You probably can't do it for prenup, but cohabitation shouldn't be a huge issue. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're speaking with attorney Melissa Hall. And not only is Melissa an attorney, but she is our attorney. And we just realized (laughs) has been so for over three years now, which is very exciting. Melissa's story is that early access to the internet meant that Melissa never even had to bother with experimenting with the whole monogamous relationship thing. And two and a half decades into a happy polyamorous life, she's got the chance to start her own law firm. And now she can help sustaining clients cope with life's little bullshit as a full-time occupation instead of just a hobby. And she's been doing that for us. So thank you so much for joining us, Melissa. I'm really happy to be here. Yay. Yeah. So can you talk about, first of all, what you specialize in? And then second of all, what drew you to this work in the first place? My law firm kind of got started about let's see, six and a half years ago when I was helping my wife do a name change in Virginia. And I don't know if you've ever gone with somebody to do a name change. It's not difficult, but it is kind of technical and it's kind of hard Mm. to know how to fill out the paperwork. And I was wondering how people who don't happen to have a wife who's an attorney do this kind of thing. Mm. Well, we weren't married yet, but so life happened and I moved to a new state and I had the opportunity to try to explore what it would look like to be that attorney for people who don't happen to have a cousin or a spouse that they could ask. Uh (laughs) And that's how my law firm got started. I call it small law, S-M-O-L, because big law is the big serious firms who do serious litigation like Microsoft versus Oracle. So I do the opposite. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, so your law firm called Small Law. So it is like the internet, small, like small boy, small, cute yes. animal. Oh, oh my S-M-O-L goodness. Okay. Small. okay, wow. Yeah, I, I, no idea. I never knew and you- that. And I love that. <laughs> <laughs> that is really interesting that you highlight that. I've definitely known over the years, like I never grew up with that person, you know, the second cousin twice removed or whatever, who's a lawyer or went to law school or whatever to ask about these things. But I had several friends who did and was always just amazed by what a resource that is. Right? Mm -hmm. You know, even being able to ask just the random like single law question, how there's just so many barriers for being able to do that, even for like you said, something as simple as a name change. You've also come to specialize I think not only in this kind of small, 
scope of practice, but also particularly with queer and with non-monogamous clients, correct? Yes, I have a lot of clients who are transgender, non-conforming, non-monogamous or queer, just because they feel like they're more likely to encounter bullshit that they need a lawyer for in their everyday life, but also because I have attachments to all of those communities. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And and so you're based in Seattle, which is where where we're based. And so does that mean that your practice is specific? Like if someone listening to this wanted you to also be their attorney, they want to be cool like us. They've got to be in, in Washington State, right? Yep. Unfortunately, well, the way lawyer regulation works, it's very much a state-based license. I am only licensed in Washington State. I am inactive in Florida, which is the only other state that I have the license in. So I can't actively represent people there. There are a number of attorneys who deal with chosen family law. You've had some on. But for me, I can only represent people in Washington right now. Yeah, I was just going to ask about that because we've had a handful of attorneys on who work in this particular field and definitely seems like a very specialized niche. From your perspective on the inside of that niche, do you see this growing or does it feel like it's are other attorneys afraid to venture into this territory? Like, What do you see as far as the bigger trends? It used to be that there was one. <laughs> there was mm-hmm. Diana mm-hmm. Adams. And, right. yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> there was also an estate attorney in Atlanta who did it on the down low. And like there were, you know, people that you knew in small communities sometimes. But as a practice area that you list on your website, it's fairly new. I've seen more people get into it and more people become comfortable talking about it publicly as a practice area. Not only as it becomes more accepted, but also as there gets to be more we can do. Mm. Mm, right. Can, can you elaborate on that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> it used to be that a lot of dealing with chosen family was kind of arm's length. That there wasn't a lot we could do to help protect people who were in re- relationships that weren't otherwise recognized besides basically a simple will. Now that there's a new Uniform Parentage Act that includes potentially the option for third parent adoption, there are some cities in Massachusetts who are looking at recognizing families that have more than two adults. Things are changing and it's an easier practice area to understand what you do for people. Mm -hmm. Lawyers are lawyers. We're all kind of type A. (laughs) We don't like not having an answer. (laughs) so one of the things that happens is you kind of see a ball roll as people get into the area and figure out how to make it a practice area more people are comfortable making it a practice area i see once you have answers you can give then it's more appealing (laughs) yes that makes sense yeah Yeah. Right, right 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 well speaking of answers that's what we're here for. <laughs> we're, we're here for all the answers, Melissa. <laughs> um, so I did reach out to our Patreon community of listeners. I posted in our private Facebook group. I posted in our private Discord, letting people know that you were going to be on the show. And of course, giving them a big disclaimer. And I'm going to give that same disclaimer now to our listeners that again, both Melissa and ourselves can't offer any kind of very specific legally binding <laughs> advice. So take everything with a grain of salt. Of course, always consult professionals that live in your area. You know, do research on what the laws and restrictions and what the situation is in your area. 
But otherwise, we're going to dive into all kinds of things. We're going to dive into talking about cohabitation, creating structures that are alternatives to marriage, families, chosen families, other legal protections. And at Melissa's suggestion, we're going to start with death. (laughs) We're going to be really metal in this episode. (laughs) Yep, it's the one thing you can't escape and like probably the thing that everyone listening needs to at least spend a little time thinking about. I don't care how young you are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I dove into this myself, what, I think middle of last year or so. I don't exactly know what spurned it on. It's not like I had a scare or any kind of increased sense of my own mortality other than what a global pandemic might do on that front. For me, it was realizing... Um, I was just kind of thinking through it one day and realizing like, oh, if I were to suddenly die, the person that the law, you know, the laws where I'm at, the person who would become the one who makes decisions about my stuff or about my funeral or who gets to come to my funeral is going to be someone who I don't know is going to stick the landing on that necessarily. <laughs> it's someone who I don't know that I really trust to do that. And so I got to do something about that. So yeah. That was what motivated me. Are there other reasons that you would suggest why people might want to start thinking about this, regardless of what stage of life they're in? The biggest thing, of course, is if you have legally recognized family that doesn't support what you would want to have happen. But the other thing is, especially if you are in intimate relationships that are not legally recognized, the more planning you do ahead of time, the easier it will be for the people you leave behind. You can write a will, that's great, but you also want to like have those hard conversations about things like life insurance. Um, One of the simplest things you can do that doesn't require a lawyer at all is just go to your bank and set who your bank accounts transfer to upon your death. Mm. There's a lot of things that you can do that aren't necessarily writing a will, that are important, but also it's really important for the people you love in a crisis period to know what you want. And that includes also things like DNRs and stuff along those lines in terms of medical questions, I'm assuming? Yes. And here I'm going to get into a little bit of a personal story. My first spouse, my husband, died when I was 30. And I had to be the one who made that DNR call for him. Mm. And I was fortunate in that I knew exactly what he would have wanted. Even then, it was an ambiguous situation. Um, So more than anything else, a healthcare power of attorney and knowing what people want you to do in a crisis situation is the thing that I suggest everyone do. Mm. And I also suggest that you consider not making it your closest partners. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. That's okay, fascinating. I think, yeah, I think that that starts to get into because I think we got a lot of questions about, okay, for instance, if I'm setting up a will, who do I choose as the executor? When I'm figuring out power of attorney, who do I designate for making these kind of decisions? So, so let's back up a little bit. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit about what an executor is, what power of attorney is, and then kind of give us your opinion on how to choose people for those roles? Basically, when you are not in play, the law needs somebody to pretend to be you, Mm, whether you're because you're incapacitated or dead. (laughs) So we have various people that we like let play you for legal purposes. 
Uh, power of attorney is one of those. You do not have to be incapacitated to have somebody's power of attorney. Right now, my wife could go into our safe and we have a continuously executed power of attorney and she can pretend to be me for almost any purpose. <laughs> um, most people, that's probably not an appropriate choice. Mm. But sometimes it's the appropriate thing to give someone a power of attorney to like continue a business while you're going on a trip or something like that. So hmm. they're a pretty flexible tool. They let you pretend to be, yeah, power of attorney lets you kind of stand in for that person in various circumstances. And they can be super limited. Like I write power of attorney that allow me to be my client's power of attorney for inquiring about this specific procedure with this specific doctor's office. Wow. Like, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I didn't so realize can, that it gets that granular potentially, but that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Like it can be really focused. Okay. Or it can be very broad and it can be springing. That is, it comes into power under certain conditions like your incapacity or when you turn 50, you can also be very flexible there. There's a lot of flexibility in these documents. Please don't get creative without an attorney, but I want to kind of give you some things to think about. When I work with people about end-of-life issues, I'm very fortunate in that I have a group of death doulas that help me. Mm, wow. Because these are not necessarily conversations you want to be having with your attorney. Like, yeah. Mm. True facts, we are not trained in how to deal with people talking about their death for the most part. Mm. Yeah, that's right. potentially traumatic yeah. over and over yeah. again for you. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. well, it's not so much traumatic. It's just that, like, I don't have the best information. Mm. Yeah. I, I know that was definitely something I struggled with when I was putting my documents together in, like I said at the top, first of all, it's such a strange thing to think about already. Mm -hmm. And I think it makes sense if you're in an interaction where someone needs you to make these very, like you said, type A decisions and you're just like, I'm still wrapped up in even thinking about my own mortality at this particular moment. I guess that makes sense to have someone like a death doula who's more trained on, I guess, like maybe marrying both the kind of functional logical aspects of this with the deeper emotional and existential parts of the conversation. Yeah. I mean, for me, what would typically happen would be we would have this conversation and then months or years later, people would come back ready to write their will. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's, oh, that's it takes comforting. that long. My goodness. That's comforting wow. because I started the process of doing <laughs> mine after Dedeker did hers. And I started it like six months ago and in trying to fill out things, I just was crying too much. I was Aww. like, I can't, I can't. Jeez. And it's, it's mm -hmm. been six months and I haven't gone back. And I keep thinking like, gosh, I got to get back to that. But it's just hard to think about. It is a hard conversation. And having that conversation with someone who's attended good death. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is helps, yeah. Yeah. A death doula. Yeah. Yeah. It it's, the, oh, sure. yeah. yeah. it's the comfort I can like offer people. Also, like... A death doula doesn't have the client confidentiality concerns I do. Mm. So they can help you ask somebody to be your medical power of attorney. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Can we circle back to you saying before that somebody who's your close partner or maybe a couple of close partners maybe isn't necessarily the best person to have as your power mm. attorney? Can you discuss reasoning behind that. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, for many years, it was my metamor because I needed somebody who knew me well enough to know what I would want. Mm -hmm. 
but also who would not feel guilty about making those choices. Mm, huh. Interesting. Guilty. Yeah. Meaning like saying DNR, essentially. I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the thing people don't think about is like, you're asking this person to decide to give up hope when you're living. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that might not be the kindest thing to do to somebody who's already in pain that you're in, you're in this place. Right. Yeah. Right. And medical situations are not always a hundred percent clear. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah it does there's require a certain amount of, of yeah. Yeah. Executive right. decision making yeah. as it were. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. They might wonder years later, did I do the right thing? Like, mm. yeah. Right. And then what about the question of choosing someone to be the, your executor? Is mm-hmm. that maybe different than that? That could be a closer partner. Yeah. Like executor is the person who is basically your ghost in the world. In Washington, we call them personal representatives just because we've decided to move away from formal language. But mm, okay. okay. It, I, I didn't it, even know. How, that. Yeah. Okay. It's good to know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. It's the same basic role. It's somebody who gets to be your ghost. They go to the court, they get a piece of paper saying, yeah, for the purposes of wrapping up their affairs, you get to be this person. Mm-hmm. It is a thankless and difficult job. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And there is absolutely probably a person in your life who needs that job. Mm. Mm. That might not be your nearest and dearest, but I think most of us have somebody in our lives who needs a lot of paperwork, would be helpful when they're grieving. Mm. Huh. Interesting. That, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That, that makes sense. I can, that does yeah, actually I, weirdly make sense. <laughs> yeah, I can already think of all the people where I'm like, there's a terrible job for them in this case, and all the people where it's like, oh, this would be a wonderful job for mm. them. Yeah. Yeah. Like that yeah. helps with that decision making. <laughs> yeah. Like, Gosh. I think a lot of times we think about, oh, who do I honor instead of like, who, when they're emotionally distraught, is going to like find going to court like soothing. Right. Wow. Yeah. 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 We got a lot of questions from people. The sense that I got from a lot of these questions, people are worried. You know, people are wondering, is there any way for me to designate who gets, let's say, hospital visitation rights? If I'm not married or if I'm married to one person but have another partner or or if I want it to be my best friend or things like that, like, is it possible to do that? Well, <laughs> sort of. Generally, I suggest that anyone you want to have hospital visitation, you be sure to have a HIPAA waiver for. Mm. It Mm. is not 100%, but usually people are willing to honor people who have HIPAA waivers getting visitation because it's a concrete example that you have some sort of discussion with them about your medical situation and you're close to them. And you can set that up preemptively? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, for me, yeah, when I was doing the process, it was part of kind of the power of attorney process Got it. or, or okay. was tangential to essentially was setting up the HIPAA waiver paperwork. But your doctor's office should have it. It's pretty routine as part of the privacy practices. You might not notice, but it says like, I waive HIPAA practices with respect to these individuals. Mm, okay. I always suggest that people, if there's somebody you want to visit you, you at least have a HIPAA waiver set up. And if you have a doctor's office that has electronic medical records, make sure you upload it there. It isn't like 100%, but it is one of the best choices that we have. COVID times, people just haven't been getting visitation. It is what it is. Right. Mm, Yeah. Right. However, 
in general, the person who has your medical power of attorney is usually somebody that medical staff will work with about who has visitation and who doesn't have visitation. If there's somebody you do not want to visit you, please also put that in your medical Mm. power of attorney. Mm. (laughs) That's important. Yeah. Right. Is power of attorney always designated to only one person or is there ever a way in which to craft it so that multiple people could become one's power of attorney? You can always have multiple people. The problem with multiple people is if they disagree, you have to have a dispute resolution mechanism. Oh, wow. Goodness. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And we need to also remember that this is all happening in emergency situations under, yeah. So generally, I suggest somebody have a lead and a selection of people that they can tag in. Hmm. Okay. Because it might not be a situation where like it's appropriate for this person or there's a particular situation where this person is more appropriate. One person with your durable power of attorney is called durable because it survives you being incompetent, which Hmm. normal powers of attorney dissolve. Oh, I see. But... Having multiple people is usually a really good idea, especially you want somebody who isn't the person you travel with the most often. Right. Or, I mean, could you set it up so you have like a secondary person who is not someone who travels with you? So, you know, something happens to both of you, there's someone else who isn't there, right? Yeah. Make those decisions. Yeah. Minimum is one person. And if they travel with you often, another person who doesn't travel with you often. Got it. Yeah. 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 I don't want us to like spend this entire time on wills, but I just have one last question um, regarding the difference between a will and a trust and what is the differentiation there and where and when is a trust like a good potential to have versus just a will saying you get half and you get half (laughs) or whatever. I am so glad you brought up trust. Yeah. Um, There are a couple of states, including specifically California, where the probate process. Where I live. Yeah. 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 The probate process in California is unfortunately not great, let's just say. Okay. So Mm. it's frequently done in California to put everything in a trust to avoid the probate process because it takes forever and is expensive. Well, I've heard setting up a trust is pretty expensive in California as well. Like, really, really expensive. Yes. Yeah. Okay. A trust is, you basically say, here is the stuff. It goes for the benefit of these people, and it happens during your lifetime. A will takes place on your death. Mm. It gets trickier. Your will can include something in some, well, in most states, including Washington, you can have something called a testimonial trust, where you put a provision in your will that creates a trust if you need one. But it's done in probate, so it doesn't help the people in California. (laughs) I see. Okay. Okay. It is useful for people in other states if they have somebody who has like student loans or gets social security disability who would need to have anything left to them in a special format. So trusts are a really broad, like general purpose tool in that they are an entity that exists to benefit people with something that it owns. If you don't mind a little digression. One of the things that frequently comes up when we talk about polyamory in the law is people talking about creating an LLC for their family. Yeah, that yeah we definitely, got a lot of questions, we had questions that, regarding though. that, so please. Yes. yes, and the problem with that is that under most states, including Washington's, 
business and corporation laws, you have to have a business purpose mm. for a business, including an LLC. Like and it can't podcast. just be love. <laughs> Yeah, our business person can't just be more love. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Like, (laughs) so one of the ways that you can deal with having a thing that is your family is a trust. Mm. Okay, I see. Yeah, it is expensive and a little difficult. It's probably only appropriate for groups that have a lot of assets, Mm. Mm -hmm. but it's also very nice if you have minor children involved because you can have one group of people that makes decisions and a broader group of people that benefits. So it can be a relatively flexible entity, a trust, and it can be a way to kind of do, here is the thing that is our family, Mm -hmm. but it is, like you said, kind of expensive, less expensive most places than California. California is, yeah. (laughs) Nickel and dime you for everything. Yeah. 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 (laughs) But, um, it is kind of the entity that's the most appropriate if you're trying to do something that just holds all your family assets. Right, right. Well, so that's a good segue for us to move on to some of the other topics that we got questions about. So backing up a little bit from family creation, we got a lot of questions about cohabitation in particular. People wondering how tricky is it to get a cohabitation agreement that's set up between, let's say, more than just two adults or... What do we do if there's two or more of us wanting to buy communal property? You know, how do we make sure everyone's protected? The financial responsibility doesn't just fall on one or two people. Do you have any thoughts about that? Okay. This is okay. First of all, Washington state specific, we have laws about committed intimate relationships. So having a cohabitation agreement before you move in with someone is a really good idea or else there is a chance in Washington state court might decide that you had a cohabitation agreement and that the terms are whatever they decide. So, I see. I see. If you didn't want them to be whatever you worried the default might be, setting something up in advance is, is the way to go. And yeah. can you just uh, quickly say what a cohabitation agreement is? Oh, sorry. A cohabita- no, no, please. Yeah. yeah. A cohabitation agreement is basically a prenup for people who aren't married. Okay. Mm. The best time to get divorced is when you're getting along. Yeah. <laughs> So you can kind of pre-negotiate how things are going to be divided if you do decide to separate. Cohabitation agreements, prenups are both really useful for that. Mm -hmm. You can absolutely have a cohabitation agreement that accounts for more than two adults. It shouldn't be super tricky. I can't vouch for how community aware most other attorneys are, but generally speaking, can you do this thing, but for three people? You probably can't do it for prenup, but cohabitation shouldn't be a huge issue. Now, two or more people buying into communal property. Remember how we talked about you need a business purpose? That's why an LLC isn't a great fit for a family. Can be a great fit for when you're you know, doing multiple um, people owning a property. Um, because that's the purpose, right? It's like we're, the purpose is to buy this house. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> like, okay. Okay. Yeah, property property ownership, completely legitimate reason to do an LLC huh. m- might mess up your financing. Yeah, yeah because you won't have any credit history as an LLC, and that could oh, kind of fascinating. You. Well, you can usually do a personal recourse loan, but you okay. might not be eligible for individual loans like HOA loans. Oh, I see. Gotcha. Yeah. Working that out with your lender and your lawyer is probably a really good idea. 
you can do a cohabitation agreement. You can do a property settlement agreement in advance with that. You definitely want to if you're buying property with more than one person. You also need to think about how you want to hold the property. Yeah. And here's where we get into right of survivorship. Right. It's what happens if one of you dies, but also like if one of you leaves, just as like, I don't want to be here anymore. Does, yeah. does it include all of that? Is that right of survivorship? If one of you leaves, generally speaking, you have a right of division, which means you get to split it up. If you can't split it up, the court will decide what's fair. Well, Usually that's 50-50, but who knows? <laughs> you probably don't want to get to the point where you're in a division. Uh, basically, you don't want to get into court is kind of like what any transactional attorney will tell you most of the time. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Generally good advice. Yeah. Advice. Yeah. As soon as you've gotten into court, most of the time people have already lost. There are some exceptions, but yeah. Division is what happens when you leave and everyone's still alive. Survivorship is what happens to the property if someone dies. If you have right of survivorship, it transfers to the co owners. That isn't an action in probate. It's just seen as it miraculously is all of yours now. Similar to how community property works in community property states, which Washington is one of. Without right of survivorship, it goes to your heirs and it passes through your wills or passes through the default will that the state writes for everyone, which we call being intestate, you know, to what the state considers your closest kin. And let me just take the opportunity to also say, so Jason and I went through the process of uh, getting a cohabitation agreement pulled up after a great referral from Melissa to the Lavender Rights lawyers who are also based here in Washington. And what I really appreciated about going through that process is it's kind of like putting on paper all these conversations that really we should all be having in our relationships all the time, whether you're monogamous or non-monogamous, whether there's six partners involved or two partners involved. But those Mm -hmm. questions about just being able to sit with all the uncomfortable possibilities of well, what if one of us wants out of the relationship? Then what happens to the finances here or the right. what you if know, the one of us objects that we share here or want someone else to move into the property? Then what happens? Yes. You know, what if one of us dies? What happens? Yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yes. And so yeah, it's a pain, but really good uh, conversation prompt <laughs> at the hmm. very least. Yeah. What do we do if we d- disagree about whether or not to remodel? Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Who's who's responsible for those costs? Yeah. Yeah. If like, our refrigerator breaks. Yes. Yeah. yeah. All that little well, stuff. Yeah. yeah. Like, there's a lot of like details about homeownership that people don't necessarily think about that are kind of useful to like, even if you don't sign it. Looking at a cohabitation agreement mm-hmm. is a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's, yeah. that's clever. That's, yeah. I like that. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. It can be yeah. an exercise. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And like I've had them go all over the place in um, cohabitation agreements or contracts. So they can't determine what happens with the property the way title can. There's a slight difference. And like if you have a cohabitation agreement, you get to sue on the contract. You don't necessarily get any ownership of the property unless you're both on the title. So that's the other thing that you need to know. There's a real difference between contract law and property law and you don't necessarily get property of rights unless you're on the deed. Mm. Right. That's kind of a lot of <laughs> weird detail, but just to get kind of back to Wills, one more thing that I just kind of wanted to say 
before we move on is that we talk a lot in lawyer circles about how money flows in wills. Okay. What is what do you mean by that? Financial planning is what lawyers kind of see wills as for for the most part. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In in the event that somebody dies. dies yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like this much goes to this person. This is an absolute because this is, you know, a percentage. There's a lot of different things you can do with money. But the other things that you need to realize about a will is that it helps recognize who your family is. And when I have had people heartbroken over a will, it's because they haven't felt recognized as family. Hmm. Um, That's a really good way of putting out. Yeah. So it's worth thinking about that too. Like there are, you need to recognize who the law will see as your family just so that they like, feel like you didn't accidentally forget to include your sister. But it's also an opportunity, particularly for those of us with chosen families, to make a statement about who we see our family as. Mm. Yeah. And in a lasting way, because wills are more likely than most of the other things that we talk about to survive. So one of the ways you can think about it is it's kind of a message in the bottles of the future about who you were, what was important to you, and like who your family is. That makes wow. a lot of sense. Yeah, because we did have a question about how, what should I consider when I'm deciding who's a beneficiary? And of course, it can be very easy to, I think, to just think about the money, let's say, or your possessions or things like that. And I think that what you just said at least for me, really clarifies a lot. You know, I've even revisited my will a couple times over the past year or so and sometimes been like, oh, yeah, do I include everybody? Do I include nobody? Who, who is this? You know, it like, like really, because no one trains you how to do this. No one trains you how to make these decisions. And that, I think, really cuts to the heart of it. That, yeah, there's the logistics and there's the decision-making and there's the money. And also there's that sense of taking a stand of really being able to clearly name these the people who are my family. Yeah. When I write a will, I generally have a section just about who the person's family is. Because you have recognized family, you have chosen family. And like, even if you don't leave people anything, naming them as family in your will is that like last thing you can give them. Which reminds me of something else that I forgot to mention when we were talking about medical power of attorney. Sorry. Um, the person you give medical power of attorney to, please consider wherever you put that document also leaving just some simple instructions about what you want and what you consider important and like how to make this choice. Hmm. Because right. like the power of attorney document, they can be pretty detailed. They can be pretty general, but fundamentally like you're asking somebody to make a decision and it's worth like, just having something in your own words for that person in that moment. And that was the part of writing my will <laughs> that I kept crying. Jeez, <laughs> was the instructions part. It's like, here's the notes. <laughs> That's the part that I had a hard time with. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I had a hard time with it, but I also, my control freak nature had a wonderful Yeah, your type A. Yeah. yeah your type just being a able to be like, you're going to do like, this and you're going to yeah. do that. And then this is the music you're going to play at my funeral. And this is how I want my body to be dealt with. And then you're going to do this. And then you're going to invite these people. And yet like that. <laughs> these are all the part. people who are going to be in the flash mob. And you know, like, <laughs> like, 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're in Washington, let me just give a shout out to endoflifewashington.org. They're a they're an end of life organization that has a great model, durable power of attorney for medical care. And you can do that yourself. It's very detailed. It covers almost all of the issues. Um, I don't necessarily do it that way. I have a power of attorney that is just listen to this person. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. So it really depends on how you want to interact with medical people. I generally don't want medical people to know my business. Mm -hmm. You need to know who to listen to. That's as much as you need. (laughs) The detailed instructions are all there. They're for my wife. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Or whoever's making that choice. Yeah. But like, yeah. So there's a lot of choices about that. But I just kind of wanted to like, we talk about this and we tend to get lost in the details. But what we're really talking about is like leaving the people we care about instructions about how to take care of us mm-hmm. when we can't tell them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really important. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this has been great so far. We're going to move on and talk about families, chosen families, how do you lawyer, stuff like that. Uh, But first, we're going to take a quick break and discuss some of the ways in which you can help this podcast out. There's so many podcasts out there now that are out behind a paywall, and we're committed to not being one of those podcasts, but that also means that ads have to be part of the equation. So take a moment to listen if you can. If you check out these ads, it helps us a lot, and we can continue bringing you all of this content for free. Thanks. We appreciate it. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's multi, M-U-L-T-I, at adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast, and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code multi to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. And we are back. We are here with Melissa Hall, attorney at law. And we got a lot of questions for you, Melissa. Just related to families, you know, to family protections, what happens when multiple people, more than two people, want to be able to have legal parenting rights or raise kids together? How do we deal with custody? And I know this is something that you mentioned being near and dear to your heart. So maybe before getting into specific questions, can we just kind of start with a general overview of like what what do you see happening as far as 
parenting and, and chosen families these days? First of all, let's just start with the good news, at least in Washington state, third parent adoptions happen. Um, at least to my knowledge, there are also more than three parents uh, adoptions that happen. And that's fairly new. And that really changes the landscape for people who are considering having children inside of a poly relationship, because it used to be like, I don't care what happens, I can't like, give anybody else custody. Mm. So that's not true for every state. I can give you some hints on how to know how possible it might be in your state. But it is a big change to the landscape and a big thing to consider if you're considering bringing small people into your relationship. Yeah, it's something that I've definitely, in the last few years, been seeing more and more in my newsfeed about either such and such specific county in some state started allowing this or has set a precedent for it, or maybe a whole state, but often it's like even regional within a state. At, mm. like at the county level or even the city level. Yeah. Well, okay. First of all, dirty little secret. What the law is, is not a simple answer. Mm. Uh-huh. So when I say third parent adoptions are possible in Washington state, I mean, I can go and get a third parent adoption in King County under most circumstances with the social worker that I like. Whether or I not see. you can get one in Walla Walla, probably mm. not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So it kind of depends who's overseeing it and who's approving it and yeah. all that. Particularly in family law matters, there is a lot of discretion involved mm. in individual judges. So what's possible varies a lot depending upon which judge you have, what county you're in, that kind of thing. And that's just a truism for all of law, but it's particularly true in family law. So adoption and divorce where your forum is, is a huge difference maker. Mm-hmm. That's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what are those hints that you you teased out of like being able to suss out oh, whether okay. this is possible in your state? <laughs> so the reason that third parent adoption is possible in Washington state is because of the uniform parentage law. The most recent version of the uniform parentage law does not automatically dissolve parental rights if the parent joins in the petition for adoption, which sounds hyper-technical, but this is what lets multiple people adopt. And because it's a uniform law, there is a thing called the Uniform Law Institute that tracks the adoption of the most recent version of this law. Huh. Yeah. And and so so just to make sure that I'm parsing all the legal words you said, (laughs) basically that's (laughs) saying that if I, as the parent of this child, sign off being like, yep, I totally want this person to adopt my kid, but I'm not signing away my rights as parent. Is that basically what you're saying? Yep, that's possible under the most recent version of the Uniform Parentage Act if it's adopted as written. Hmm. Wow, okay. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So basically you say, yeah, I'm good with this. No, I'm not willing to give up my parenting rights. So let's all join in this like happy situation together. Right. Wow. Mm. Yeah. So you can go to the Uniform Law Institute and track the adoption or not adoption of this most recent uniform parentage law in your state. I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Before that, what would happen would be people would sometimes go ahead and do a 
parenting agreement. That whole thing we were talking about before, the best time to like figure out what happens when things go wrong is when things are go right. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's not binding and it doesn't work as well with children because things change a lot just natively. <laughs> like mm-hmm. what you're going to do if you break up when you have a infant and what you're going to do when you break up when you have a teenager, likely very different plans. So that was the previous best protection, still like potentially useful, but a thing that you should know. The other thing that we need to talk about when we're talking about parentage is the presumption that goes with marriage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you are married to somebody and one of the people in that marriage has a baby, the presumption is that that baby belongs to the people in the marriage. Mm. It's called the marital presumption and it's a pretty strong presumption. You can't even challenge it in many states if you don't do it within a certain time after the baby is born. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the biology stops mattering after two years for most people. Gosh. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Interesting. Gosh. Okay. So that kind of goes into the overall theme with parentage law, which is the major concern of parentage law is to prevent heterosexual hijinks. It's not to accommodate poly people or queer people. To the extent that we are accommodated, it is a accident <laughs> or right yeah yeah or something that lawyers have have found ways to be like oh let's use this thing to try to help us out but sure it wasn't made for that wasn't yeah. made for us yeah yeah heterosexual hijinks our next podcast <laughs> <laughs> oh my can you imagine <laughs> let's not I think none of us did. are yeah. quite heterosexual enough but no. good title though i'll just stick that in the back pocket for something else yeah yeah <laughs> so like those are the kind of things that you need to know when you're dealing with parentage you kind of need to know what the rules are in your state the part that's hard is finding a family law attorney who actually knows what the rules are in your state can be tricky And the other thing that you need to know is who's on a birth certificate is evidence, but it's not a legal conclusion. Can you elaborate on what that means? A birth certificate is considered an administrative record, at least in Washington state. Hmm. That is like, it's basically like a parking ticket. It's evidence that a thing happened, but it isn't considered a determination that a thing happened, if that makes sense. That takes a court order. Hmm. there's a big difference between being on the birth certificate and having an adoption order or a parentage order. Because those are more like conclusive. Yes. It's been decided, not just birth certificate. We just print those out willy-nilly yeah. when babies pop out. We're yeah. Like, yeah. Just whoever's okay. standing there, we put their name on it. Just, <laughs> yeah, okay. like, Good this enough. guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like, that means that a judge has taken a look at it, come to a determination. It's a finding of fact. And that means that the full faith and credit clause is invoked. So it's probably enforceable in all 50 states. Now, I don't know of any multi-parent adoptions being enforced or not enforced in states where they're not recognized. I keep looking for that, but it's not necessarily a thing that you're going to hear about. Right. Right. And and that's something that that came up on, gosh, one of our previous episodes where we talked about law on this show, but that thing of like so many of these types of cases get settled out of court because people are just like, I'll do whatever it takes to just not lose my kid or not have a problem. So I'm not going to take this to court and try to set a precedent or whatever. It sounds like maybe that's what's happening here. Yeah, I know of 
one or two reported decisions in the United States that involve polyamory. Mm-hmm. Right, it's not a lot. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, we did have a question about that of, are there any recent examples of that? I, I know that I've heard of a couple different cases that have floated through the air, both positive and negative, right? Or both positive where it set a really nice precedent and also negative where someone's custody was revoked or or things like that. But I guess that is the question of, is there anything recent and pressing that you've noticed? Unfortunately, the most recent precedent I know of is like 2005 in Pennsylvania. And oh, wow. Oh, that's so a long time. That's a while ago. Yeah, <laughs> because custody cases don't get to appeals very often. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think I feel like Diana Adams and also Eli Sheff talked about that quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. like it. it's a really hard area of law and like not one I practice. I don't do dissolutions. Um, mm-hmm. So unfortunately, I am not necessarily up to date on that. Right. Got which it. is why I'm like, no, you want to get as many people as possible parentage. That way it's not an issue. You have to do custody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know informally Washington State we are equipped to handle child support from up to four parents oh, on wow. like just a like infrastructure level. Okay. Huh. <laughs> Great. Okay. That's good. <laughs> like, um, like we have what? Like we have four lines on the paperwork or we have four <laughs> like slots in the box where you put your checks or like what? <laughs> what do you mean? The agency that reports child support payments has software that will accommodate for people okay. who are required to pay child support. So funny how it does well, come down to just that infrastructure. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah. Like, like I don't have another slot in the database. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I don't and I don't have like an official report about this. This is the kind of stuff yeah. that happens okay. like, when you yeah. talk to people. Yeah. Over, like, yeah. yeah. But there is this expanded recognition of people can have more than one or two parents. A lot of that is being led by artificial reproductive technology. Right. Mm. Yeah. But poly people benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's like we're picking up all the scraps from everyone else. <laughs> Just <laughs> cobbling it together. Whatever yeah. we yeah. got. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I understand that they, there's this desire to press the political cause of polyamory. But one of the things I really appreciate is how particularly Diana Adams and some other people have decided that it makes more sense to advocate for chosen families of all kinds. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Because if chosen families get what they need, then we get what we need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have talked about having a chosen family recognition ordinance in Seattle. It probably wouldn't have any legal effect, but sometimes it just matters that somebody says this person is your family. Yeah, oh, kind of like you mentioned yeah. with the wills, like even yeah. just having that official somewhere so that at least someone can point to that and be like, no, I'm not messing around here. Like this is this is real, even if it doesn't legally enforce anything. Yeah. That makes sense. And while we're on the subject of chosen family, I just want to also mention something that comes up sometimes. We've talked a lot about ways to make people family, but one of the other questions I get sometimes, is there any way to make somebody not family? Mm. Right. Yes. That's interesting. And unfortunately, well, there is a way. It is an unfortunate way. And that is adult adoption. If you... <laughs> what? <laughs> like so as in, so let me try to guess what you're implying yeah. here. So as in let's say I have a huge falling out with my mother, you know, my mother who doesn't accept my relationship, sexuality, gender identity, whatever it is, mm-hmm. do not want this person as my mother. I could have a friend em- of Emily. mine. Emily. 
adopt Emily you. adopt me as an adult and then legally Anytime, she's my mom. Anytime. <laughs> she's the mommy. And then not, all of her you people know. are your people and you're not related to most of the people in your family anymore. Wow. Mm. Now, well, now, okay, so so that's the thing that you can do as an adult that then doesn't need that sign-off from your parents to sort of give you up. You're kind of able to sever that tie for them yes. through that adult adoption. That's really good to know. Yeah, yeah. it's a good, good tool. Yeah. 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 I mean, it is an extreme remedy, and it's difficult finding somebody you want to be your parent. Right. I, I mean, I've seen people do it. I've yeah. known friends yeah. who have done it for, for various reasons. Yeah. But, yeah. but if you're in that situation where you have somebody you're related to that you really need to not be related to. Yep. Yeah. I really love advocating for chosen family just as a political option for polyamorous people in general mm. and just in general, because it's really weird when you think about it, given how much we value freedom and self-determination that of all of the things you get to pick you do not get to choose who is family to you yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and that is very weird and something that makes me uncomfortable on a regular basis yeah that that makes a lot of sense and Mm. it's one of those fundamental unquestioned things <laughs> about our culture but but you know the conversation is changing i think as more and more people become aware of even chosen families as a concept even separated from the legal side of things that definitely helps yeah i, I want to as we're coming to the end here i want to you know a couple of listener questions about just the logistics of even finding a lawyer what to expect there and and i want to start it out with the broad question of like, okay, so I've listened to this episode. This is great information. This makes a lot of sense. Why can't I just on a sheet of loose leaf paper write out, this is what I want to happen when I die. This is my power of attorney. Here's my signature. Here's the date. Done. Why can't I just do that? Okay. So it depends on the state. In Washington state, writing your own will in your own handwriting, which is called a holographic will, is not considered sufficient. Mm. It sounds cool, though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What if I printed my will as a hologram? (laughs) (laughs) What if it was a holographic sticker? (laughs) The thing thing that makes wills magic is that they have to be witnessed by two people who testify that you were in your right mind and they actually saw you apply ink to paper. It is very like... Oh, wow. Yeah, there is. It's called a will signing ceremony for a reason. Okay, yeah, <laughs> it's a <Yeah>. ceremony. <laughs> yes, I, I had to grab two strangers in a UPS. <laughs> really? You're yes, like, watch really. me do this. That's amazing. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm just imagining you there with like a feather pen and an ink pot, and you're like, <laughs> yeah. just hold on a moment. This will only take a few hours. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I am not going to discourage people from doing the best that they can with the resources they have. Like if we had unlimited money in a world like that, I would want everyone to have a lawyer. Hell, I want everyone to have a lawyer. That's why I have the practice that I do. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. But we're an unaffordable luxury to people. And like, I have my own feelings about that and the choices we've made as a profession that make that true. But mm. it is what it is. However, there are usually forms available, especially for durable power of attorney, that living will, that are better. And when it comes down to it, you can't undo it if it's wrong. Mm. Like even having a legally enforceable power of attorney, durable power of attorney for medical care, your ability to get the hospital to do what you want often depends on whether or not you have a lawyer who can show up at the hospital attorney's like office and be like, look, I'm going to go file a restraining order (laughs) unless you 
Yeah. Right. Wow. Okay. Because like fundamentally, as with everything, what you want to have happen and what you can make happen are two different groups of things. Yeah. And when you have legally correct documents, you have the ability to make things happen. If you have things that are just written down and you have people who love you and care about you and they are the people that the state thinks should have the control, things can still work out. I'm not going to tell you you're doomed if there's not an attorney helping you with this, but it all depends on everybody getting along and everything going just right and that person surviving you and right. and working really hard to work around the fact that they don't have an actual will that is enforceable. Mm. So you're making things harder on the person who's in a tough position if you don't have legally enforceable documents and having even basic legally enforceable documents means that the people who you're perhaps counting on to stand up to your blood relatives have a much stronger position and the ability to help you. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That's that's pretty compelling. It's easier to have a lawyer shoving some legal print <laughs> sure. in someone's face than just your binder paper <laughs> being shoved in somebody's <laughs> face. Um, I, I'm going to read this question verbatim because I loved it and thought it was so funny. Um, so someone in our Discord said, I've never really needed an attorney, but how does one go about starting? Like, if it's high time I do a will, do I just walk in and go, one will, please? <laughs> yes? <laughs> and I think that applies to a lot of these things. If I want a cohabitation agreement, I want to start thinking about a third-parent adoption, where do you even begin? It's tough. And our user interface as a profession is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I agree. We are like, if the medical pro- profession decided to get rid of all family practice and uh, oh, gosh. Yeah. doctors yeah. and you just had to show up at the right specialist's office. Right. So if you want a will, you want a trust and estates attorney most of the time. They generally will do a package deal. You can get a simple will for a flat fee up front. That usually includes other planning documents like HIPAA waivers, like medical power of attorney, like an economic power of attorney, which can be really important if you have an incapacitated business partner or um, domestic partner whose account you need to get into. Interesting. So there's just some tactics there. If you want a cohabitation agreement, you probably need a family law attorney or maybe even a real estate attorney. It depends on the particular like state you're in and the skills of the people involved. If you want a third parent adoption, well, <laughs> there's three people I know of that can do. It, it is, even extra special within yeah. a specialty. Well, yeah. yeah. So yeah. the best way to find an attorney is to ask an attorney. They might not know, but usually we have we're a little like mushrooms. You see the individual attorneys with our little heads up above the ground, but we have <laughs> networks underneath because none of us is good at everything. <laughs> I see. Yeah. yeah. So you follow the, I mean, that's kind of how it worked for us trying to do our cohabitation agreement, not, you know, not being married and things like that and not having intentions to kind of having to follow this like chain of, well, this person recommended this person and they said, oh, well, maybe this other person. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think people are sometimes shocked at how limited our expertise really is. Hmm. I am sorry that the user interface sucks. It just does. (laughs) Well, Melissa, this has been really excellent. We're going to continue the conversation in our bonus episode. But for everyone else, uh, we just want to know where listeners can find more of you and your work. And also, please plug your own law firm as well, if you would like. 
My law firm is small law. That's S M O L hyphen law.com. I'm available there. I offer ongoing legal representation for these kinds of small questions. I'm available on Patreon as well. Representation for your family costs $50 a month. And let's see, I am on Twitter and my personal account is casual law and my professional account is small law there. Most other places I go by Vrimj, which is V-R-I-M-J. And feel free to contact me and ask me random questions or um, ask me for referrals in your state. Yeah. And let me just say to our listeners, can highly, highly recommend Melissa. Something I've really appreciated over the past three years is that it does feel like I've suddenly got that cousin who is the lawyer who I can just shoot an email to, you know, instead of it being like, okay, well, we got to book you at a 15 minute appointment and that'll be several hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and then the appointment's going to be six weeks out and you got to wait for that. Like, that's something I really, really appreciate about that, that it's, you make it very easy and very accessible and you've helped us with so, so, so many things (laughs) over the years. Thank you. Yeah. So we are going to go on to record a bonus episode with Melissa. We're going to be digging into queer parenting and some of the ins and outs of that. We may have some time to cover some more legal questions as well. So we hope that you will stick around for that. On our Instagram stories this week, we are posing the question and we want to hear from you. Who do you consider to be your chosen family? However you want to answer that question. Maybe it's the people you are going to name in your will. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's some something different to you, but we want to know. The best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and you can join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Emily Matlack, and me, Dedeker Winston. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanetta. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. Full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. 